This week marked the first meeting of what's historically known as the Board of Freeholders. That body can propose a plan consolidating services or governments in St. Louis and St. Louis County. And some of the members, like Fred Searcy, believe they can chart a positive course for future generations. I will look out for the city and the county because I believe that we're just one region. Even though it's county and city, we're one region. But the board that met this week wasn't complete because of a standoff between St. Louis Mayor Lida Krusen and the Board of Aldermen. Board President Louis Reed wants to see more city appointees from North St. Louis, contending there needs to be strong representation from that part of the city so they can have major input on any proposal that goes to voters. We know that Better Together failed largely because people did not feel they had a voice. They didn't feel they had a seat at the table or an opportunity to see what is important to them expressed through the process. On this edition of Politically Speaking, St. Louis Public Radio's Julie O'Donohue and I break down the struggles to make the Board of Freeholders whole. We also talk with Capitol reporter Jacqueline Driscoll to break down the differences between Missouri and Illinois' medical marijuana programs. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. Well, we want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. Welcome to Politically Speaking. Uh, I'm your host, Julie O'Donohue. I'm here with my co-host. Jason Merzenbaum. And we're here doing the, I guess, fairly new roundup show that we're doing weekly i guess it's not that new this is like the sixth or the seventh one we've done (laughs) so at this point i think it's slightly new yeah fair enough partially new (laughs) yeah uh for the week of november 11th to november 15th so we're going to start out talking about something that happened on tuesday uh that some people might have been looking forward to, and that is the first official meeting of the Board of Freeholders. I know I was looking forward to it. Some people <laughs> may f- feel it's a waste of time, but but those people I, I, I disagree with. So, Jason, tell us what happened at this meeting, and more importantly, who was and wasn't there? Well, this was not a terribly substantive meeting because the only members of the board who are in place right now are the nine St. Louis County appointees and the one gubernatorial appointee. As people who have listened to the show may or may not know, uh, the city appointees have been kind of locked in this impasse for the past few weeks. By the time this show is is finished, I don't know if that impasse will be over. But for the, for the sake of clarity, on, on Tuesday, um, the city appointees were not participating in this entire process that could result in a plan put before voters to somehow combine services or governments in St. Louis and St. Louis County. I noticed in your article that uh, the mayor seems to think it doesn't reflect well in the city. I nominated my uh, nominees back on September 23rd. That's almost two months ago now. Uh, And so it's not embarrassing for me, but I do think that it doesn't reflect well on the city that we can't get the Board of Aldermen to take a vote. In Mayor Krusen's view, She believes that she's put forth nominees that would do well 
in a process that she's not super bullish about. I think that needs to be uh, broadcast to people that she thinks that the timing of the Board of Freeholders is poor because it's coming so close to the demise of the Better Together plan and Steve Stenger's incarceration. She was a supporter of the Better Together plan. Um, but I would also say that a lot of people that have followed this process believe that Cruson made her appointments very, very quickly and didn't talk with Alderman enough about who should be appointed to this board. And I, I have to say that the critics of Cruson's selection who say that there are not enough representatives from North St. Louis City, that's not an in, inherently invalid point because any plan that comes out of the Board of Freeholders ostensibly should help places like North St. Louis and North St. Louis County, predominantly African-American areas that have been left behind for decades by government. So having strong representation on that board is not just done for philosophical purposes, but there should be buy-in and pushback from people that would be affected by this on the board. And eventually there's going to have to be some sort of conclusion to this before somebody who's really, really interested in this process continuing files a lawsuit and says that the city is in violation of the Missouri Constitution. So you told me offline that you were surprised that there was actually some uh, fairly interesting discussion at this meeting, even though the city members are missing. So you only have county freeholders and the appointee by Governor Parson. What did you find interesting at the meeting? First of all, it was good to hear the sitting Board of Freeholders members. And by the way, I'm just going to say this now, like some people call the Board of Freeholders the Board of Electors because of a Supreme Court decision that made it illegal to bar people from this board if they didn't own property. So you're going to hear people call it the Board of Electors and the Board of Freeholders interchangeably, but they're the same thing. I just want to make that clear to our listeners. I think some people who are on this board right now talked about why they were there and what they're hoping to accomplish and also talked about their different life experiences. That to me was interesting just because these uh, members of this board, some of them are quasi-public figures, but a lot of them are just kind of civically-minded, ordinary people. Um, And the other aspect that was interesting was you had members of the Board of Aldermen provide kind of their take on what they do and don't want to see. And I think it was probably important to hear from African-American elected officials that talked about the dangers of anything from this process quashing or reducing black political power. Because, you know, I'm sure that there are listeners out there who are like, you know, who cares what politicians have to say about this process? And, you know, it should really be about what happens for citizens. Well, if any process like this results in black people not being able to get elected to office in predominantly black areas, then I don't think that's going to trickle down very well for ordinary African-American citizens. That was certainly the case for the Better Together plan. And that's been the case for any, quote unquote, city-county merger discussion. Okay. And now we're going to move on and talk about Prosecutor Wesley Bell and his budget ask of the county council. Uh, for this segment, uh, Jason, you're going to take over as host. Yeah, because it, I didn't cover it. You did. So it'd kind of be weird if you ask questions to yourself. Agreed. Uh, wh- what did you find out in this hearing? This, I believe, was Wesley Bell's first budget ask as prosecutor. And from reading your story, he wants more money. Yeah. So he wants a lot more money. He wants about $1.4 million more, or at least that's what he told the county council yesterday. Um 
some of that is to address what he just sees as like staff shortages in the office. Uh, but some of it's also to expand, I would say, uh, programs he's running to provide alternatives to jail and prison time. Diversion for programs. Folks. Yeah, diversion, also deferred, something called deferred prosecution and dr- and um, not just drug courts, but, you know, like the alternative courts, veterans courts, mental health courts, those types of things. Basically, all of those things, not to get into it, but all of those things are ways to sort of take people who have been arrested and have been convicted or are likely to be convicted and kind of put them in other programs, drug programs, mental health programs, whatnot, instead of having them go into the uh, jail and prison population. And I think that one of the potential benefits of this is the county could save money by not housing inmates. Right. So when Prosecutor Bell was asking for this one point five. $1.4, $1.5 million, he basically pointed out that he believes uh, his focus on diversion programs, which he's been kind of implementing since the beginning of the year, is already saving the county money. The county jail population, according to him, is down 29% from last year. Uh, And he thinks that he's responsible for part of that. He didn't say he's responsible for all of it. And that would but part of it. And that would certainly save the county money. It costs about $75 a day to house someone in jail. And that's without going into the medical costs and, and some other auxiliary costs you can have. So what was the reception from members of the county council? I, just from the makeup of it, I think that they would be receptive to the the budgetary ask. But I also know that at least a couple Republicans on the county council we're asking sharp questions about how he's spending money, which we talked about on an earlier show. Right. Um, so it's hard to tell because the full council wasn't there. There was definitely a partisan sl- split. So uh, Lisa Clancy and Rochelle Walton Gray were present, as was Ernie Trakis and Mark Harder. And I would say the Republicans, that would be Trakis and Harder, uh, were asking a lot more pointed questions of Mr. Bell. Some of those pointed questions were about how um, some recent reporting that we've already gone over on on uh, Wesley Bell's uh, trips out to restaurants and travel and whatnot. And some of the questions actually were about his priorities in the office. So less about like meals out. Uh, I would say Ernie Trakis in particular asked a lot of questions about why Wesley Bell has de-emphasized child support, I guess, criminal convictions. Well, he's talked about that before on St. Louis on the Air, that it's counterintuitive, for example, to jail fathers who are behind on child support. Because if they if if the county ended up doing that, how are they going to make money to pay for child support? That's what I remember him talking about. Right. And he also said that St. Louis County was doing this on a level under his predecessor was going after people who failed to pay child support on a level that other major jurisdictions around the country that are sort of a similar size were not. And I think, yeah, I think he's also emphasized that if someone is is willingly not paying child support and they can, they will go after them and they could potentially still be jailed. That was what I've heard him say before. I don't know if he said that at the meeting. No, he did say that. I think one of the issues that was a little bit complicated is, I guess, that the prosecutor's office was receiving um, funding. And I'm sorry, I don't know if it's from the state or the federal government, but I believe it's the state to 
uh, go after child's people who failed to pay child support. So part of their budget has decreased because they're no longer doing that. So they can no longer justify the staff in order to draw down the state funding. And I think that Ernie Trakis's questions were kind of like, well, you're not drawing down this state funding, but here you are asking me for more money. You know, what? what's up with that? And I, I felt Wesley had a very coherent answer for that, which is he thinks that these other programs that unfortunately the state's not going to come in and, and fund, it seems like, are more important than going after people to pay sh- child support, uh, that these other programs should be a focus of his office. This wasn't the only St. Louis County related criminal justice news this week. Um, St. Louis County Executive Sam Page appointed two new members to the Board of Police Commissioners, Lori Punch and Thomasina Hassler. That means that the board will be a majority female for the first time. And Page also appointed a new chief of the jail. Right. Raul Bonesco, who is from Texas and also worked in Florida. Um, I We have not talked to him yet, so we don't know much about him. But I think it's safe to say in both of these cases, uh, these changes were kind of born out of um, some I think it's safe to say scandal uh, that there were a lot of people who have died at the jail this year. And uh, it was, I think, on Dr. Page to get a new jail director in there quickly so that it, you know, they can deal with some of those problems. Well, I'm going to turn it back to you because I'm done asking questions. (laughs) Okay. All right. Uh, Well, let's take a break here for our sponsor and we'll be back after this message with Jacqueline Driscoll, our correspondent in Jefferson City. And welcome back. We're here with Jacqueline Driscoll, our Jefferson City correspondent. Hey, Jacqueline. Hello. And we're here to talk about a story she ran earlier this week about differences in medical marijuana laws in Illinois and Missouri. Jacqueline, do you want to quickly explain your story? Oh, gosh. Uh, I should have put bullet points, I guess. Um, There are a lot of differences between the medical marijuana programs in Missouri and Illinois, but the overarching theme to my entire story was that it is much easier to gain access to get a medical marijuana card to get approved by a doctor in Missouri than it is in Illinois. I took a look at Illinois, not only one, because I'm from there and I'm very familiar with the program, but also it's our state's neighbor, and they did it through um, the... They did it legislatively, so it's much different than when um, laws are passed by a voter referendum um, because there's a lot more give and take. Um, but Illinois' program is has been running for almost half a decade, so I wanted to look at what a well-established program looked like in comparison to Missouri's that is just getting started. My understanding about Illinois' medical marijuana program is it started off being very, very restrictive And then recently, especially with the passage of recreational marijuana, it's expanded to be easier for for patients to obtain. Am am I getting that correct or am I am I reading that trajectory incorrectly? No, definitely. Um, You're absolutely correct. When Illinois' program was first rolled out, a lot of people will talk about the slow roll of the program. Um, That's from a lot of people who are in the program, specifically dispensary owners. It was really hard to get a card. First off, we need to mention that this was in 2013, and the whole concept of marijuana and medical marijuana was much different than it is today in 2019. Um, But 
you know, doctors were kind of hesitant. There were several hospitals within the state that forbid their doctors from certifying patients um, to gain access to the medical marijuana program. Um, but also, the governor at the time was Governor Bruce Rauner, Republican, and he expressed that he was not necessarily for um, a robust program that was allowing people easy access to medical marijuana. So it definitely was slow rolled. Recently, um, so I guess it was last the last legislative session, um, Illinois made that program permanent and they added several qualifying conditions. So previously things like chronic pain was not a qualifying condition in Illinois, which is pretty much widely accepted in every state that has a medical marijuana program. You know, one of the things that was really notable about your story is that Missouri's medical marijuana system gives doctors a lot of leeway to prescribe the drug to people. I know that there there are specific ailments in the constitutional amendment that would allow you to get a medical marijuana card, but I also got the sense that there is some open-endedness to that entire process. Uh, Can you explain that a little bit further? Sure. Uh, Missouri has several qualifying conditions, and they're very similar to what you see in other states. So chronic pain, PTSD, um, cancer, epilepsy, there's several qualifying conditions. But Missouri has a little clause down at the end that says, in the professional judgment of a physician. So what this means is if you have a condition that is not on the list and you go to a doctor who thinks medical cannabis will help you with that particular ailment, you can be certified for cannabis. So it really is up to the physicians. And I spoke to the Department of Health and Senior Services. Again, what's different about Missouri and Illinois Illinois has a very robust system in place where the Department of Health is kind of tracking which physicians are certifying and how many patients they're certifying. The Department of Health and Senior Services here in Missouri is not doing that. They don't really give the doctors any regulations. It's it's pretty much up to the doctor, and they can certify as many patients as they want. Really, they could set up a shop where they are only a certification doctor, and they're just bringing people in who want access to the medical cannabis program. So, for example, let's say that I suffer from depression or anxiety or depressive-like symptoms. From what I've read in the amendment, it doesn't say any of those things would be covered. But if a doctor says that medical marijuana would help treat those ailments, I could get a medical marijuana card. Is that basically what you found through your reporting? Yes, that is. If, 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 if I, I mean, I could have a common cold. I'm going to, I'm, <laughs> this is a drastic situation, but I could have a common cold and a doctor says, hey, um, you know, medical cannabis could help with that. And I could get a medical marijuana card. Is it any medical doctor in Missouri that can prescribe because I know in some states there's like a limit on how many doctors can prescribe. It's a, it's a licensed MD in good standing. Um, I believe they've had to be in practice for a certain amount of years. I, I would have to go back and double check that. Um, but yeah, it's any licensed MD in good standing with the state. And and again, when when we talk about you know this is up to the physician's discretion, they are really putting their license on the line. You know they they. They don't want to get in trouble with the Board of Healing Arts here within the state. So so there is um, some checks and balances there. It's not just a total free-for-all. But again, as I pointed out, 
I was just looking at the differences between Illinois and Missouri, and there are a lot of differences in that regard. I think a big question going forward for a lot of states, like Illinois, is that I see in 10, 15 years marijuana being legal everywhere for recreational purposes. And I guess the question is going to become, if you can just go to a dispensary and buy marijuana for non-medical purposes, is that basically going to make the medical program kind of obsolete since you can get marijuana without a doctor's prescription uh, after that? I think it'll be different. Um, I don't. I, I can't envision what it will look like, you know, 15 years out. But currently, right now in Illinois, there is still a benefit to having your medical card because you don't have to pay the taxes mm. that are that have been tacked on to recreational cannabis. Now, if it's legal everywhere in the United States, those taxes may, you know, be different. Um, they may drive that. It may drive those taxes down, and it isn't a benefit to be in the medical program anymore. But also, what's different. In, in Illinois, and um, Missouri also has this clause. If you have a medical card, you are able to grow your own cannabis at home, um, which is also a much cheaper alternative, right? If you just have to go in and buy seed to plant your own, you know, to grow your own cannabis, you're not having to pay those taxes every time you need to access your medical cannabis. Yeah, I don't want to make this about uh, a personal situation, but I have a family member who uses medical marijuana to treat cirrhotic arthritis. And um, we have discussed options and uh, and um, having your health insurance cover it, having it not be taxed is is a is a huge advantage. Mm-hmm. Where do they live that your their health insurance covers it? That's wild. I've never heard of that. <laughs> I think we were thinking in the future. Oh, OK. Yeah, they they uh, they they don't live here. Okay. Yeah, so, I can Sorry imagine. for the personal question. No, no, but I was no. Like, I I understand, but it is like it is much more complicated than you than you think. And and I would think, you know, Jacqueline knows far more about this. But when you talk to people, for for example, who have kids with epilepsy or something where um, this could be used as a potential treatment, I mean, it is kind of like a, a, a there's a bunch of landmines out there about about how to go about acquiring it legally. Right. I don't think you would just want to go into a dispensary, buy a brownie infused with marijuana and give it to your kid with epilepsy without talking to a doctor first. Right. 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 Yeah. I mean, there is. And and what's unfortunate is the country has classified cannabis as a schedule one drug for decades. So the country has not really studied it. Um, There's not a whole lot of medical studies Yet, there are some studies that have been completed, you know, overseas where cannabis hasn't been classified as federally illegal in every other, um, you know, municipality, country. But, um, yeah, so there isn't a ton of research out there to suggest how beneficial cannabis can be. But we are seeing as our country shifts, the stigma shifts, we are seeing how it can, you know, really be a benefit to kids, adults, you know, the older population. Well, uh, Jacqueline, is there anything else you want to say about the story that you think people should know? Oh, just read it. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot in there. Um, If you want to see how different states approach um, cannabis programs, this is, I mean, you can't get any better right here in the Midwest. They're right next to each other and they are, they have stark contrasts. So it's, it's really interesting. 
All right. Well, thank you, Jacqueline, for coming on the show. You can read her story about medical marijuana and the differences between the Missouri and Illinois laws on our website at stlpublicradio.org. And I guess I should say you can listen to it there, too. And we're back for our final segment, which we have decided to call Show Me Something. Uh, Jason picked the topic this week. (laughs) We're going to talk about something that's been making the rounds in journalism circles quite a bit. Uh, And this is a editorial from The Daily Northwestern, which is the student newspaper at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. Well, I don't know. Jason, you want to sum up what the editorial said? So basically, it revolves around coverage of former Attorney General Jeff Sessions. And from reading the editorial and some of the subsequent coverage, it was clear that a lot of people protesting Sessions' speech at Northwestern were really upset that the Daily photographed people, that they contacted people with with text messages asking if they wanted to be in the story. And I think it precipitated this apology that was roundly circulated in social media. And it was when it was first being circulated, I think it was being pillared by a lot of older journalists. Right. It was an apology that seemed to be penned from the editor-in-chief, although it sounds like it was probably the student newspaper's management team got together and and developed a consensus around sending this. But I I think we're meant to think that the editor-in-chief is the one that actually wrote it. Yeah. And I think the reason this caught my attention was twofold. First of all, my wife is an alum of Northwestern and had very fond memories of working at that paper. The second reason is I, I consider Evanston, Illinois to be my adopted hometown. My, my parents got divorced when I was 18. My mom moved to Evanston and I basically went back to Evanston. And this is the city newspaper for the city of Evanston, even though it's run by students. I think that needs to be clear. I had a like a really sharp, snarky reaction to this, like a lot of journalists. I, I think I tweeted out, hey, L. Todd Librarian, this is your newspaper. But I subsequently <laughs> deleted that tweet. That, that's Jason's wife. That's my wife. I, I subsequently deleted that tweet once I started seeing some some people rightfully say that these are college students. I, I don't agree with the editorial. I don't think that it's wrong to contact people via email or text message about whether they want to be in a story. In fact, I think that's the least invasive way of doing it rather than just cold calling somebody. Um, I do understand kind of the the, the, the the tension between the press and African-American activists because I covered Ferguson. I saw some of that tension firsthand. And I'm empathetic to a lot of distrust among like the Black Lives Matter movement. And I'm saying that kind of widely because I know that it's more expansive than that. And, and the press, because the, the press got a lot of things wrong during Ferguson and they've gotten a lot of things wrong about that protest movement. So I, I, I think that my, I, I kind of come down as I don't agree that when you protest in a public space that you should get anonymity. But I understand the concerns. And I think that hopefully the, the Daily Northwestern staff kind of learns from this, but they shouldn't be demonized or banned from journalism altogether. I'm a graduate of Northwestern. I went there for graduate school, um, so I I did not write for the student newspaper. In fact, I didn't write for my college's student newspaper either. 
And it seems like there was a backlash from uh, the student body, particularly the protesters, that they were um, outed, I guess would be the word for protesting. And and the editorial kind of apologized for outing the protesters. And I think a lot of us who are professional journalists, you know, that that strikes us kind of at the core. Because honestly, if you go out to like a car crash or someone's um, a homicide scene, um, and I've never been a crime reporter, so I haven't done very much of this, you are having to approach people on the worst day of their lives. And it often seems invasive and wrong. And I think the people that you're approaching to talk about their son, daughter, wife, husband being shot and killed often also think it's invasive. <laughs> and uh, and I think when you're a journalist, you kind of have to build up that this is right, that you're okay with doing this, making people uncomfortable because it's, quote, for the better good. And I think, uh, I think probably what happened was these protesters got upset. The newsroom was sympathetic to people who don't necessarily want to be outed for protesting a Jeff Sessions speech, and they issued an apology. I think that was probably the wrong move, but I also think probably like Jason, that these are students. And honestly, some of the decisions I made in college weren't the best. Nor, nor was I. And I just want to add one more thing. I think that there have been some people that have been using this episode to attack journalism schools or the concept of, of getting a journalism degree. First of all, from a factual standpoint, the Daily Northwestern is not affiliated with the journalism school. It's an independent student newspaper that is run separately from the journalism school. So people making that argument are not being factually honest with themselves. But number two, part of journalism is making mistakes and also making decisions that aren't going to make people happy. And in some ways, even though I disagree with this editorial, it's kind of part and parcel with the concept of journalism that sometimes publications do things that make ordinary people angry. I would also say that the Washington Post uh, reporter Wes Lowry made a good point. You know, it it is it behooves us as journalists to think about what it's like to be on the receiving end of inquiries and having your picture taken, especially if you're a normal person. I mean, J- Jason and I interact with a lot of elected officials. They've kind of signed up for that in some respects. And if you have signed up for that, that's one thing. But if you're just a normal person going about your business on campus and you find it jarring to get a phone call from the daily newspaper, I can understand why that's jarring. I think that that's the right thing to do. I think that that's good reporting. But, you know, we can think a little bit more about how our our jobs affect you know, private citizens going about their daily lives, even if they're going to a protest. All right. Well, I think that's the end of our show. Shula Newman is our executive editor. Fred Ehrlich is the politics editor. And John Larson is our sound engineer here at St. Louis Public Radio. You can find articles and other content that we produce at stlpublicradio.org. Jason, where can we find you? Jay Rosenbaum. And you can find me, Julie O'Donohue, at JSO Donahue on Twitter. Thanks so much.